Are you still trying to reinvent the wheel? Tens of thousands of professionals have attempted to solve the same challenges you're dealing with right now. Some of them failed, some of them succeeded. But very few of them succeeded and captured their proven approach to share it with the world. Mike Kunkel is one of these very few. He has been an enabler for over 30 years and has captured his proven approach in an extremely successful framework called the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. Mike and I have now translated the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement framework into a learning experience that helps a new generation of enablement teams fast-track their journey to sales enablement mastery. Our combination of group coaching sessions, actionable video lessons, materials, resources, networking opportunities and templates makes mastering sales enablement best practices faster and easier than it has ever been before. So if you want to stop reinventing the wheel, maximize business impact and fast-track your career, consider joining a growing community of enablers at the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement Learning Experience. To learn more, visit goffwd.com slash blocks. That's g-o-f-f-w-d.com slash b-l-o-c-k-s. Unfortunately, only, I'd say only 20% of the founders I meet with have nailed their product market fit. Most of them focus too much on what they're offering and how it's better than anything else in the market. And your friends and family care about you, but the prospects you're going after, all they care about is their issue and whether or not you could fix it. And if you don't know what their issue is, you're not going to get them to respond. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. There comes a time when growing startups need to get serious about their investment in sales. Our guest in this week's episode is a fractional chief revenue officer who works with startups to build sales teams from scratch and enables them to drive growth. In our conversation, he shared how he approaches the challenge of starting with a blank slate, common misconceptions about building sales teams, and how he goes about finding the right talent. Please welcome Vince Sapula. Vince, welcome to the State of Sales Enablement. Felix, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Where are you dialing in from today? San Jose, California. Awesome. So you told me earlier you're a Warriors fan. This will date the podcast a bit, but at the moment the Warriors are three up in the semis. So we'll see how it turns out, but I've got a feeling they'll be all right. Yeah. And I was a little worried about your uh, Miami heat, but after that last win, uh, it looks like they have the advantage back again. So we could see each other in the finals. That's right. That's right. We might do another recording then to talk about that, but uh, Vince, just to kick things off and give people an idea of yourself, what's your background and what do you do now? I'm a revenue acceleration specialist. Basically a lot of the companies that I work with. They hire me either because their sales are declining or they're a startup, the founders running sales and they can't scale if they keep running sales. So I come in as a chief revenue officer or VP of sales and I run it for them, but I do it at a fractional level, which basically means because I've done it for 25 years, I can do it by only spending 10 hours a week instead of 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And I could give them the framework that they need 
I could train the sales team, manage the sales team, and they get all of that at a fraction of the cost. So they get strategy and leadership at a much bigger discount. So I uh, spent 30 years in uh, high-tech sales. I started off as an individual contributor, and then 25 years of that has been a sales leader. Uh, most of my career was helping large enterprise companies go to market, selling to large enterprise companies. And then in the last 10 years, the market changed quite a bit. And there were two things that contributed to that, the cloud and the cybersecurity landscape. And so with, with cloud enablement, all these executives had a cloud first initiative. And then with the cybersecurity landscape, all of a sudden the threats were just far and wide. And how that changed the market is founders and executives learned that they can no longer just buy from the market leaders. They needed to start considering these smaller companies that maybe they never heard of to actually get the solutions they needed for both cloud and creating the cybersecurity framework necessary to protect your company from ransomware or any other threat. That's really interesting. So uh, in a sense, the markets got democratized and really offered those opportunities for those startups to really disrupt those incumbent businesses. Yeah, and I learned in working with the founders versus working with those two, $3 billion large enterprise companies, one, it was a lot more enjoyable for me because I got to work with the founders, but two, they don't have as many resources, obviously not as much money as these large enterprises. So you have to be very, very meticulous with each dollar you spent. So every hire you make is so important when you have maybe 50 employees or 50 employees or even a hundred employees, it's still really important. So that's how they got me the business I'm in. And I also, it's just a lot more enjoyable working with the founder and helping them grow their business, helping them hire people. And when you help them close big deals, it can be life-changing for them and, and their employees. And that's why I do what I do today. Yeah. Amazing. I think the reason why I was really keen to have you on the podcast is because sales enablement typically works when the sales team is already there, but you actually built that sales team from scratch. So, and that's exactly what I want to dive in with you today is that process and those considerations when building a sales team in the first place and what we can learn from that to then basically accelerate things with sales enablement. So the type of businesses that you work with, you mentioned founders doing sales themselves, so assume. It's more in the startup space. Are there any other descriptors for the sort of businesses that you work with? Yeah, there's two categories. My ideal customer is between five to 50 million in annual revenue. And there's just some sort of gap with sales and maybe sales are even declining. Like they had a really good run and then sales started declining and they're not sure why. And so I come in to basically do an assessment and then the other profile is a startup. So it's both of those scenarios that I come in to run sales for them. But they're always B2B. I've never done B2C. And B2C is, I believe it's more marketing-led than sales-led. So that's another reason why I don't do B2C. You mentioned cybersecurity earlier. Is that also the sort of industry that you particularly focus on? Or is that just B2B in general? It's really just B2B in general. I have a client that's in manufacturing. A lot of my clients are software companies, but they're a software company, but they're not necessarily selling a high-tech solution. I've got a client that has a SaaS solution for home improvement. 
basically he's creating an app to be the DoorDash for home improvement. Mm, got it. You mentioned that a lot of times founders initially do the sales themselves and they are trying to get out of that just so they can be more strategic in their thinking and the way they operate the business. And if you imagine the sort of situation that they're in and them wanting to move to a high-performing, building a high-performing sales team, how do you go from founder doing everything themselves and basically working things out along the way to everything being fully structured, you having salespeople in place, having all the foundational work done that is required to run a sales team? How do you go from A to B? Like what are typically, broadly speaking, the steps that are involved? Yeah, good question. First, Felix, let me just say that if you are a startup, I believe having the founder or at least one of the founders run sales initially is the right way to do it. I think the founder needs to make sure that they understand their product market fit and their ideal customer profile. And usually you need to get 10, maybe 20 customers to validate that. And it's not till you validate that, that you should start hiring salespeople because you don't want to do a hire when you don't understand those two elements because it's too risky that you get a mishire. And when you're that early, you can't afford to have mishires. You can't afford to burn through that cash. So you need to check that box. And then once you check that box, what I advise founders to do is you got to look at your pipeline and you got to look at your inbound leads or your top of funnel that's being filled from inbound or possibly references. If you have a fairly good inbound, then your first hire probably should be a sales rep. If you don't have enough inbound leads, then your first hire, you might want to hire a BDR before uh, a sales rep. And a lot of this too, just depends on the bandwidth of the founder. So like an example is I have one company advising, it's a AI software product. And right now they have 25 leads in their pipeline. Two clients are in beta and the founder, she's been running all those sales meetings. And she really doesn't have the bandwidth to keep doing that. So for her, it makes the most sense to just hire a sales rep. She's ready versus hiring a BDR. Cause the last thing she wants to do is get more meetings that she has to run herself. She doesn't have the bandwidth to do it. But then I have another client that's about 50 million in annual revenue. They already have four reps, but their challenge is the reps aren't going after new business. They're just sitting on the existing accounts. So. What I'm advising that client to do is hire BDRs and new reps that specialize in going after new account acquisitions. So you need to do an assessment of your environment, but you want to hire to specialization. That's really the way to scale. It's not a good idea to hire generalists. That's right. That's right. And apart from the hires that you mentioned, what are some of the other foundational work that you typically have to do in order to really get those sales going? You got to make sure you have a hiring process and you have to make sure you have a predictable, repeatable sales process. Both of those are key because if you don't have a good hiring process, you're going to miss hire on the, on the people. And then once you hire them, you need to make sure you have everything in place to onboard them correctly, get them trained, and then have them go through a predictable, repeatable process. And then yeah. the specialization helps with that because it's easier to hire, it's easier to train, and then they'll be more successful. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So that's typically what sales enablement would also look after in, in large organizations. 
In terms of the foundational work, so you mentioned product market fit earlier. Is there a lot of work you need to do around defining that ideal customer profile and those buyer personas? Yeah, good question. It's an ongoing process. Unfortunately, I'd say only 20% of the founders I meet with have nailed their product market fit. Most of them focus too much on what they're offering and how it's better than anything else in the market. And your friends and family care about you, but the prospects you're going after, all they care about is their issue and whether or not you could fix it. If you don't know what their issue is, you're not going to get them to respond. You need to know you have product market fit and it's an ongoing process. Like when you get to 10 or 20 customers, what you want to do is you want to meet with those customers and ask them, why did you buy our product? And they will validate your product market fit. So that's a part of what I do and what founders need to do. And then for the ideal customer profile, it's the same thing. It's ongoing. You want to collect the demographics in your CRM and you want to look at your close ratios so that you could validate what you thought was your ideal customer profile. Is that in fact totally true? Did you get it right? And a lot of times there's maybe three to four metrics that identify that profile. And so you just want to trap those movies forward to make sure that that's fit. Like an example is I had a client that was a cybersecurity company and compliancy and a high use of map books. Those two were the biggest two metrics for them for their ideal customer profile, because most of the competitive solutions only ran on PC. They didn't run on Mac. So that gave them a huge upswing. It moved their close ratio from 18% to 42%. So that's the value in tracking your ICP. Yeah, yeah. I think what you mentioned around founders initially being really product focused and not really buyer focused, and it being really important that founders are initially involved in the sales process is really interesting because it really brings on that point that sales, because they're customer facing, are such a powerful market research tool and have such potential to really create that feedback loop to market, which I think is oftentimes also lost in large organizations, you know, where it's more fragmented, you know, the, the product team operates very differently from the sales team and they both don't talk to each other, even though sales are talked to customers all the time. I think that whole dynamic is absolutely fascinating. And I think the sort of work that you do around creating that feedback loop early is absolutely crucial for those sort of businesses to scale. So I can certainly see a pattern there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once the founders hire the sales reps, the fact that they weren't in the sales cycle, they could use that to their advantage to after the company is a customer, the founder CEO could reach out three months later and say, Hey, thank you for your business. I'd like to set up a short discussion with you to learn how you're using our product and thank you for your business. And that gives you an opportunity to hear from your customers and help you further validate your product market fit and your ICP. That's right. That process of the CEO potentially then reaching out and following up with customers, is that oftentimes a formalized process that you see, or is that something that just happens on an ad hoc basis? It's not natural. Very few founders do it. I have all my clients do it, but yeah. not that many people do it. I think there's a thought that if you reach out to the client and you ask them why you bought your product, I think there's this perception that they'll think, 
what you, you don't know why we bought our product and they'll think like you don't know their business, which is not <laughs> the case at all. Just because you want to hear them tell you how are you getting value? That doesn't mean you don't know their business and you could let them know up front when you first meet them, what you like about their business. And you're, you're really glad that you got them as a customer because you're so impressed with their business. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think the other point that you sort of make when you do these win loss analysis with clients is also that you actually want to deliver a better service to them and to other customers, right? So. The fact that you ask those questions really shows that you care. So I think that should certainly be a positive message. I think the other thing as well, and this is not supposed to imply that this needs to be done through my business. So my consulting business also works with clients who want to do weight loss analysis. What we often see is that it's actually positive if an external party comes in and runs those because yeah. the client is then more willing to openly share what their experience has been the positive and the negative, because they're not talking to a representative of their company. So, and then at the same time, you also earn the right by being an external provider to ask questions, as you said, that some clients might expect the sales team to already know. So I think engaging an external party, no matter who it is to run those win-loss analysis, obviously with experience can really be an advantage in that process as well. Yeah. That providing that service, Felix is extremely invaluable. A loss, especially a loss on a big deal is painful and almost always the last thing a sales team wants to do is go back and revisit that, but you need to learn from it because you never want that to happen again. And almost always when they lose a deal, they don't know why and helping them in that aspect makes them a lot stronger moving forward. That's right. So when you work with founders, especially those that don't have a sales background and might not be home in that whole world, from your point of view, what are typically the misconceptions that those founders have when you first attempt to build a sales team? Like what do they think will happen? And then how is it different to how you actually approach things? Yeah, I think the largest misconception is they feel like they just need to get top sales performers from the market leader, which that could be a good thing, but often it's not a good thing because you need to hire from a company that has a similar profile. So you don't want to hire a sales rep from a company that is say 500 million in ARR if you're only at five, because it's a completely different environment, it's a completely different culture. And there's a really good chance the sales process is a lot different. The other misconception is. A lot of founders feel like they have to hire from their same domain. And I don't even mean like cybersecurity. I, I met with one founder and he only wanted to hire from companies who did identity access management because that's what they did. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's niche. Well, as long as you only want to hire one person a year, that could work. <laughs> <laughs> they really need to focus on their sales process and the key character attributes that make a successful salesperson. Yeah. If they don't know that, I help them with that. But like typical characteristics are you need to have like a winning attitude. You need to have grit. They need to have confidence, but not too much that they're cocky. Confidence so that they're comfortable controlling the meeting. And you want them to be curious and then they need to be coaching. That's the one thing that a lot of, not just founders, just everybody hiring, I think today overlook 
you need to have somebody that's cultural. An example of that is if you hire somebody that's been in sales for a long time, selling maybe in the same domain that you're operating, they have a way they're used to doing it at that last company they worked at, and maybe they were really successful. It could be a lot different. And if they're not willing to take your coaching advice, because you know you have 20 customers or 100 customers, whatever the number is, they're not going to do well. They need to be willing to be coached. It's just like coaching a team. The coach might get some star recruit from a high school, but if the recruit's not coachable, he's not going to work out on the team. The coach probably won't even be able to start him. Absolutely. I think the other thing that I also often notice from salespeople going from big enterprise sales roles to smaller companies is the resourcefulness aspect. In big companies, you have different teams looking after different parts of the sales activity. You know, like you have people creating content, you have people maintaining the systems. So it's really fragmented on that front. And then when they join a smaller business, suddenly they have to do a lot of things themselves and work a lot of things out themselves. So I think having somebody who has resourcefulness on that front, from my experience, is absolutely crucial when you throw somebody in a role of a startup that is just starting out building their sales team as well. Yeah. Now, in terms of actually sourcing sales talent, which is also something that you do, you mentioned this sort of profile that you're looking for when hiring salespeople. How easy or hard do you find it currently to find good sales talent? It's not really easy. I wouldn't call it easy at all. I mean, it's doable and there's a couple of things you could do to your advantage, but the pandemic changed the market quite a bit. I think the pandemic seems to have created a, a shortage of available talent. But the other thing the pandemic did was everyone had to start hiring over Zoom. And even though businesses are starting to open up and they're starting to be some face-to-face, -face, there's still a lot that's being done over Zoom. And so I think that makes it harder, but I think you need a good source to get to the right candidates. And unlike LinkedIn, the best you can get, you know, the, if you need to hire a lot of people, or let's just say you need to hire six or more employees within a year, you really should get a LinkedIn sales recruiter account because it'll just allow you to do the volumes. Because to be successful, you need to keep in mind the best candidates, they have a job. They're working for somebody. And I would say for each hire, you want to have about 80 candidates. The LinkedIn paid services allow you to do that. And then if you have that repeatable sales process and you are hiring for specialized roles. And usually if you're at five or 6 million in an ARR, you should be specializing. If you're before that, depends what kind of business you are. There's SaaS companies tend to have more profit than a widget company because your cost of goods is a lot cheaper. But if you have that specialization, then that's easier to hire too, because it's easier to find a BDR than it is to find an enterprise sales rep. So. You hire the BDRs, you can make it easier to find the enterprise sales rep. If you break that off out into two, you have the enterprise rep that's doing new acquisition, and then you have the enterprise rep that is nurturing or farming your existing accounts. That's what I like to do. And I think that gives you a better probability. And then the last one is if you are a remote workforce or a hybrid workforce, you should play that to your advantage. And don't assume the employee, the candidate, excuse me, wants to be a remote employee, ask them that. And then if you're okay with it, just whatever way they want to go, let them know that that's what you support. 
That's right. And why do you think there is that shortage at the moment in the U.S. market for sales talent because of the pandemic? Is it because people hold on to the jobs that they have or is there a lack of talent coming in from other countries? What are the reasons for that? There's a website that I've followed that lists the number of SaaS companies that have been founded in the last, yeah. not positive on the time frame, but I think it's three years. In the last I checked, they were up to over 1,800. So right, right. that's a lot of jobs. And we have this whole inflation thing going. The stock market is completely different than it was a year ago. So maybe that changes. I think the high-tech valuations could come down and that could change things. But there's been more jobs than there's been uh, people available. And it could depend on the sector that you're in, the industry that you're in. But for most of the business owners that I meet with, it appears as though there's a shortage of talent. Right, right. Does that mean they also have to go up with the salaries? Over the last year, yeah, we were raising the OTEs by about 10 to 20% to get the candidates that we wanted. Right, right. But if you have to give somebody more, you could just raise the quota and you got to make sure that the quota is doable. But like an example is I had a client where the original quota we thought was 1.25 million a year. So we were going to give them an OT, the sales reps an OTE at 250, 250K for that. There was a candidate that interviewed extremely well, and we really wanted to hire that person, but they wanted 300 OTE. So we gave him 300 OTE. The quota was 1.5 million. So we only moving that much. A couple of hundred grand to the company is maybe an only another 25 to 50K in OTE for the employee. And that smaller amount to the employee could be all you need to get them to join your team. And when it comes to those more intangible aspects of the job, the culture that the business offers, you mentioned flexibility in terms of remote working and so on. What are, from your point of view, the factors that you come across and that you observe that really make salespeople join a startup that don't have anything to do with money? Yeah, I think culture is the foundation of great companies and you need to set that up in the interview and you need to show that in the interview process. It's sort of like, you can't tell somebody you're great. You have to let them meet you and they need to figure out on their own that you're great. So you let them meet with other employees and other employees talk about the culture. You let them know that you're an employee first culture, an employee first company and I think all of that resonates with the people you're trying to recruit. And then the other thing that I've learned over the years that is more important than money. I mean, you have to pay fair market value, but most people think money is all that matters to sales reps. And that's not true. I think the biggest thing is recognition and not just recognition from senior management or the founder, it's recognition in front of their peers. And there's a lot you can do on a monthly basis, quarterly, annually basis to give not just salespeople, employees that do a great job recognition in front of their peers. That goes a long way. Yeah, that's awesome advice. I think that's what I've seen over and over again. Salespeople even that do really well in terms of their hitting their quota and bringing a lot of money in when they don't feel valued. I think that's always a trigger event, so to speak for them to look for a new job. So uh, I can see how that would be happening in the U.S. as well. Yeah, if you have like a contest for the month or the quarter and the prize is dinner for the top performer, 
for them and like for their friends. Imagine if that person goes to dinner with their spouse and two other couples and you're buying the dinner they pick them up in a limo and they're like, wait, why are we doing this again? That salesperson has to tell them, oh, I want this contest and this is what my company bought for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Think about how good that will make that employee feel. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I think that there was also my sales management roles, always something that I try to emphasize is whenever there was a big win that we really celebrated that in the group, you know, like, and really made a thing out of it, you know, because absolutely, I think the other aspect as well is if there's this public celebration and different people are being celebrated, it's also team building, I think, because other people feel happy for them and they celebrate together. So as you said, the cost might be marginal for a business. It's just about the attitude and the signals you send. So it doesn't have to cost a fortune. Right. I think valuing people is really something that is a underestimated factor in talent retention. Absolutely. Vince, we're running out of time, but thank you so much for joining today. If people want to connect with you online and learn more about the work that you and your business do, where can they do that? The easiest place to find me is uh, LinkedIn. I'm the only Vince Zapula on LinkedIn. So if you just type in Vince Zapula in that search bar, I'm really easy to find. My buddy, Sam Ramirez, he's not so easy. There's like 3,000 Sam Ramirez's on, <laughs> on LinkedIn, but there's only one Vince Zapula. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Vince. Vince, thanks for having me. Next time on The State of Sales Enablement... So often we treat it as a numbers game. And when you are chasing a quota, you forget a little bit that you are just interacting with a human. It's not business to business. It's actually human to human. Considering the recent budget cuts in the enablement space, it is no surprise that in a recent LinkedIn poll, 56% of enablers stated that they plan to increase their ability to create business impact in 2023. I've teamed up with sales enablement legend Mike Kunkel to create a webinar that outlines proven approaches to maximizing enablement's business impact. To watch the seven steps to maximizing enablement's business impact, visit goffwd.com impact. That's goffwd.com slash I-M-P-A-C-T.